This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international programme of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and today I'm joined by a round table of guests. Um, I was hoping to bring you this recording live from the Prince Charles Cinema in London's Leicester Square uh, where we were watching the DS9 documentary, What We Left Behind. Uh, but unfortunately, we got turfed out of the bar there. So we've had to come to another cinema bar instead. So we're actually at the Curzon, just up the road, uh, which, to be honest, is a much nicer bar. Uh, and I'm joined here by several people who have watched the film today with me. I, I think none of us for the first time. Um, first of all, I've got Carlos Miranda here. Uh, hi, Duncan. Thank you very much for having me on. Hi, Carlos. Always good to have you back on the show. I've got Drew Barker here. Hello there. Thanks for inviting me as well. And I've just been introduced to a friend of Drew's called Andy. Andy Palastides, is that right? Yes, hello there. Good to have you all with me. Now, am I right in thinking that all of you have uh, seen the documentary before? This is not actually your first uh, viewing, even if it's your first cinema viewing. Oh, it's my second time. I saw it because I was a backer as well. But I do believe it was Drew's uh, cherry was popped this evening. Yeah. Oh, uh, was it? Is that right? You hadn't seen it before? That's correct. Yeah, first time tonight. And what did you make of it? Yeah, it's very enjoyable. I thought it was really good. Very thorough documentary. Did it live up to expectations? Is it kind of... Because uh, I remember when... I don't know about you, Carlos. I mean, we saw it... Well, actually, you saw it the night before me. But broadly speaking, we saw it at the same time. I felt when I first saw it, it, it kind of lived up to expectations. But at the same time, it went so much further than I was expecting. Because it's so much sort of more than just a, a documentary. It's kind of... Um, I don't know, there's something more rich and creative and quirky about it. Um, it wasn't so much uh, a documentary about the show as it was about the story of making the show. It was a story about the cast and the crew, not this was a Star Trek show which tells the story of that. It was a much more personal story for the cast, and that was a big theme throughout with Iris Stephen Bear telling that we started making this for the actors to give them a sense of validation, and then we started including the writers and then the cast, and finally the fans, and it just became... A big love fest for Deep Space Nine. And it's definitely something that has kind of snowballed. I mean, they talked about this a little bit in the kind of after film. They had a sort of a, a pre-recorded Q&A 
well, not a Q&A, but a pre-recorded kind of roundtable discussion uh, with Ira and some of the producers of the film talking about uh, how they came to the decision of making more of the HD footage and so on. Um, I know, I think you've all been involved, or some of you have been involved as backers from the beginning. I mean, I donated a bit when they were desperate for more HD footage. That was the thing that, that got me. They sent me a little coin. I didn't get my name up on the screen, but I got a little coin in the post to say thank you. But it was interesting. I, I got the sense that a lot of people there probably had been involved in crowdfunding that documentary one way or another. Yeah, I mean, I was involved. I think um, I, I told. I, th- I think I might have told you the story. The day they launched the documentary, I saw. I'm sorry, not the documentary, but the Indiegogo campaign. I was. They launched it in the U.S. Uh, and I think like West Coast time. And I woke up here, and it was the morning of. And I, it, like, obviously on Star Trek Twitter, it was everywhere. And I was like, well, of course, I'm going to back this. And then I was heading to a meeting that morning, and on the tube that morning, Alessandr Sigdig was sitting right across from me, and I was like. Okay, this is clearly a sign. I have to give, you know, I'm, I'm going to give money. So I gave, you so know, you just gave the money to him. Uh, right? yeah, I was basically just like here, and he was like, "Please, uh, you know, leave me alone." Um, uh, no, but it was I ran into him on the tube, and then that night I gave like immediately, um, and I couldn't be more excited. Uh, uh, but like, I guess at the end result, and just to kind of echo what's already been said, I think that the show, the that the doc is just a nice celebration of the show, but also of the fans and the community that has built been built up around DS9. But oddly, you know, this documentaries are really usually about something that's happened. And I think the most interesting element of it was the writer's room and this idea of a mythical season eight and where could the show go if it was being made in the here and now. So it was a nice, I think, it's a nice like trip down nostalgia but also like a, a real celebration of the show and of the people that, that made it and also kind of looking forward so I just think it's, it was it was fab they managed to bring something new certainly with that, that writer's room and that was the thing for me going into it that I was the most excited about yeah. what did you make of that Drew had you I mean had you had that kind of spoiled for you by this point or was it were you genuinely going in as fresh as those of us who saw it last October were no I must admit I had been spoiled a little bit by the, uh, the season I um, yeah I, I thought it, it was really good actually a documentary can be quite dry but this this certainly had like the wow factor going for it i'd say it, it certainly has that um just moving on a little bit the thing that i thought maybe we could all uh, have a little bit of a, a sort of discussion about was one of the things that struck me when i first watched the documentary one of the things that came out of it very strongly was terry farrell's uh, role in it and the way that the uh, departure of terry farrell from deep space nine was handled and i i'm not necessarily saying that the the film is necessarily making any huge revelations or anything like that but it does kind of uh, shine a spotlight on that moment you see i mean she is very emotional about it even you know now whatever it is 20 odd years later it's clearly a, a raw nerve um and it just made me sort of think back to you know going back to watching ds9 in first run and going back to uh hearing that terry farrell was leaving discovering you know that jadzia was going to die i think that was spoiled certainly for me i think i'm pretty sure i knew she was going to die before i saw it um and then sort of trying to adjust to this new dax trying to adjust to esri and all the kind of um baggage that goes along with that and i just remember watching that first episode of season seven and you know um actually feeling very sorry uh, both for Esri and for Nicole Dubois thinking you know gosh what a, a weight on your shoulders to be um, in that position where you're you know you're taking over from someone that no one not least the person themselves really as it seems really wanted to leave um, so I thought that was something that we could maybe um, talk about a little bit I mean I'm curious how much uh, and maybe as a theme of this documentary is that our memories can be distorted and we, and we you know can't necessarily trust them but 
How much do you remember from watching DS9 sort of in first run or originally? How much were you kind of familiar with that story and with what was going on behind the scenes there? Because it is quite an abrupt shift from, you know, Jadzia for six years to then Esri in the final year. Well, certainly, you know, I'm old enough to remember watching it the first time around. Um, internet was a thing that occurred only at school and for research purposes only. So I knew nothing about it. I didn't have the Star Trek magazine and even so that was an official publication. So that wasn't going to go into all the gritty details which came out later on. So it was just, it was a... It's very abrupt. It was very. It wasn't telegraphed at all, really. It was just, oh, we're going to have a baby, dead, and it was just like, ah, what the hell? And then bringing back Ezri. I don't think anyone saw that coming at the time. So it was just a real shocker. Um, and yeah, didn't see it coming at all. It completely blindsided me. I mean, I was of an age, shall we say, where uh, I wasn't uh, terribly offended by brought Nicola de Boer to uh, to play uh, Ezri. Uh, perhaps yeah, I was in a very, of an age that I think I was quite offended that Terry Farrell had left which is you know the other side of that coin yeah, but yeah. I'm quite interested in which one of us is older now but uh, <laughs> that's a discussion for off the cast but certainly it was um, you know a different dynamic it was a very different Dax and I think that was good it was the fact they did cast against type and they did they didn't just try and replace Terry Farrell they gave us a new character who would just interact as Dax and I think that was a clever way to do it whereas the e- easy answer perhaps would be to just bring back another person slot them in and then just pretend nothing happened like we saw in Deep Space Nine with um, Moogie uh, who had two actresses before they settled on Cecily Adams well that would have been bold uh, and, and maybe if they'd gone with the original Dax makeup which was much more intense they could have you know tried to, to slip that by but I think it's an interesting point you're right they, they definitely went with a a different kind of character so where Jadzia was very kind of calm and composed and kind of you, you know felt very much kind of older than her years somehow you know she really played that uh right from emissary onwards in a sense with Esri the emphasis was very much on this uh young woman who was not particularly confident who didn't have much confidence in herself who'd not been through that whole training you know was kind of sort of uh in a sense sort of playing against type you know it was a different um it was a very different personality that they were going for. And I think that was problematic in some ways because it did make it easier for uh, both other characters in the show. I'm thinking of, say, Worf and Garrick particularly gave Esri a hard time, but also for the audience as well. I think those characters are almost voicing some of the things the audiences are thinking. You know, we've had this really strong, confident uh, female character, and now we've got this young woman who seems almost quite weak on the surface. And obviously they kind of delved into that, and I, I don't think ultimately maybe that's where they went with Esri but um, just from first impressions maybe that was the, the kind of sense you got they've certainly gone for someone very different yeah yeah they did and I, I think she you know Nicola de Boer had obviously big big shoes to fill and I, I don't think it would worked if they'd carried on with the, the confident character so I think it's, it's a good move to, to bring in a, a younger Dax I also think it helps uh, with the new Dax that Quite a few of the episodes in season seven seem to centre around her. Certainly when we was watching season seven, which we, we only did recently for the first time, it did seem like every other week was a Dax, a Dax episode. And plus also the, uh, the nine episode arc at the end seems to centre a lot on Wolf and Dax. So I, I think they were deliberately trying to break the, the character in, which I do think they succeeded by the end. 
Well, they knew, I guess, they had to do it quickly. They knew they only had one season left. It's not like with the other characters where, you know, you have someone like Julian Bashir who it, it takes, you know, years to get to the point where people can even stand to watch him, basically. They're kind of they're, they're carrying that journey so slowly almost. Uh, whereas, you're right, absolutely, like with Esri, they kind of had to cram all of that in. It's interesting, though, because... I feel like DS9 Season 7, if you compare that to, say, Voyager Season 4, it feels like, it doesn't feel to me like Esri gets in the way of the story in the same way, whereas I think a lot of people felt that when Jerry Ryan was brought into Voyager, it sort of became the Seven of Nine show in some ways. I think the difference there is, though, with Jerry Ryan, she was deliberately brought in to try and boost her ratings, whereas uh, Nicola DeBoer was brought in just to replace... Um, Terry Farrell as to replace that so there was a different dynamic going on there uh, one thing that's quite noticed in the documentary is uh, the other space station show Babylon 5 has one mention but there is a parallel to be drawn in Babylon 5 with um, Christian Christ- Ivanova can't remember the actress's name right. but yeah. when because she Claudia leaves Christian. Claudia Christensen Claudia. something like that yeah. Ivanova when Ivanova leaves at the end of season four and they bring in Captain Lockley who yeah. while is a different character she's still playing the same archetype of a character and that's very jarring because you're inviting direct comparisons between the two they manage to avoid that I think with um, uh, Esri Dax's stories in season seven though you know you were saying they tried to break her in they tried to they have to build a character to a certain point by the time they get to that nine season arc and as we heard in the documentary a lot of the writers just like writing something different because you know there was a chance to do something from a new perspective so she she got a lot of episodes but they weren't necessarily the best episodes I'm looking at you New Sydney yeah um, I mean it's interesting also thinking of Babylon 5 of course they had their their captain basically they lost after one year and had to replace with someone else uh you know, so that that was something that viewers of that show, I suppose, had kind of had had to accept before. And maybe those two are not quite as similar. But again, I think you're definitely right. There's a kind of archetypal similarity, certainly compared to if you think of, uh, you know, Kess versus Seven of Nine. They are almost opposite characters in many ways, you know, from the kind of innocent, kind, sweet character to this kind of sexualized, uh, abrasive um you know, slightly, yeah, emotion, exactly, emotionless character, almost kind of as different as they could have been. I mean, it's interesting, though, thinking of War, of uh, Deep Space Nine, of course, we're thinking of um, Esri coming in, uh, Nicole Dubois coming in, taking over the role of Dax, but they also, of course, had Worf, and Worf was brought in very specifically, intending to boost the ratings, <laughs> intending to bring over next-gen viewers, and I think there was that kind of anxiety. I mean, Nanar Visitor talks about it in the documentary. She was thinking, she said, am I going to end up basically bringing in the coffee to these two guys, because Worf's going to become the de facto uh, second-in-command? And I think, obviously, the writers of DS9 maybe were aware of these issues and kind of able to tread carefully around these issues and to kind of shake things up in terms of the number of characters without without kind of ruining anything maybe and maybe that's because they had so many returning characters that they were dealing with anyway i mean if you compare ds9 to next gen their use of characters uh, is so much more sophisticated in some ways and, and complex so maybe they could incorporate okay they get the edict from above we're going to bring michael dawn on the show and they they can work out how to do that successfully yeah, but I think I would also add that of all the next-gen characters, Worf was always the one that was most Deep Space Nine in a way. It, because if you look at, with the exception of maybe Data, um, arguably Picard, none of the other TNG characters had seasons-long arcs, right? You had someone in Worf with, 
you know, you think of an episode like Sins of the Father, Reunion, Redemption. There is a there is a real story arc for for the character of Worf that goes all seven seasons of Deep Space Nine. I'm sorry, of Next Generation. It, it's not as in your face as as Deep Space Nine as Deep Space Nine goes, but it definitely it's definitely there. It's definitely present. So I think that, and they brought a lot of that into into Deep Space Nine. And so I think that of all the characters that if you were going to bring over a character, Worf made the most sense, and he was able to bring with him a lot of baggage that worked quite well on Deep Space Nine. So I actually don't think that the, the bringing in Worf in some respects was kind of, was very jarring. I think that Worf actually slips into deep, the Deep Space Nine storytelling uh, quite easily. And I, I, you know, I think obviously Michael Dorn says in the doc that, you know, the, all his favorite Worf episodes and the best stuff he ever had to do was Worf was on Deep Space as opposed to TNG. Maybe that's also because Worf is a bit of an outsider, uh, and and DS9 is really the place for the outsiders. It's kind of where all the slightly oddball characters can feel at home, in a sense. You know, it, it's not the Starfleet flagship. It's not this, you, you know. And and they even play a clip in the documentary of Jadzia saying, you know, gosh, that ship must have been boring, basically, because that because it's such a different, you know, it's a much more earthy, much more kind of real um, environment. Funnily enough, when you were saying he's the next gen character who belongs the most on DS9, I've always thought if they brought Pulaski in on DS9 rather than Next Gen, uh, she would have been a better fit for that show because she, you know, she had that kind of spiky personality. She had that kind of abrasive side. She wasn't a likable character, but she was an interest. You know, there, yeah. there is a kernel of an interesting character there, and I think Pulaski, I suppose, is maybe. Um, probably the strongest example of an attempt to do this to shake things up to replace one character with another where it kind of backfired i mean i know there are people who will defend pulaski uh, i quite like pulaski as a character but i'd say the majority of fans still uh, have quite negative feelings uh, towards her you could almost argue this was the second time warford replaced the character because obviously tasha yar killed yeah. off in season one and then Worf goes from really just the Klingon background character to becoming one of the main characters for there. So, you know, he'd already done it once then. <laughs> Absolutely, that is true. That's a, that's a good point. And I mean, it does make you wonder, you know, what was going on on Next Gen in season one that, uh, you know, t- two of the three female leads basically ended up uh, wanting to leave. Yeah, you're going to answer that question. <laughs> well, it is a fantastic documentary, which is currently on Netflix called Trouble on the Bridge, yeah. which is all about the writing of that. And yeah, but that was a mess. And the reason why Tashi Yar and... Um, Sorry, Denise Cosby and Gates McFadden left is just because um, all respect to Gene Roddenberry he had a very 1960s view of how women should act in Starfleet and also um, I can't remember the guy's name but Maurice Hurley Maurice Hurley very prickly sort of character as well so it's not all that surprising why they uh, jump ship I mean I think it's kind of interesting it's sort of noticeable when you look at this list of these characters that get replaced you know you've got Crusher being replaced by Pulaski you've got Kess being replaced by Seven of Nine um, you, you, you know you've got the situation with the Daxes and we it's clear from the way that Terry Farrell speaks in the documentary that she felt she was being treated quite badly that she felt she was being treated with a lack of respect in a sense I suppose um, and that some one of the producers she said made a comment to her you know you'll be stacking shelves in a supermarket next week basically um, uh, that they weren't taken seriously. And I, and I think it is kind of noticeable that it does tend to be the female cast members uh, in Star Trek, for whatever reason, who end up being booted out, or who end up leaving in unhappy circumstances. I mean, even going all the way back to the original series and Janice Rand, um, and, you know, the circumstances around Grace Lee Whitney uh, leaving that show are, you know, really unpleasant. I mean, she's had a truly horrific time, I think, and, and 
you know left as a result of that so it does sort of make you wonder you know what's going on with these people being pushed out because i mean okay terry farrell it was uh it well it, it was not entirely voluntary you know maybe she she kick-started it by saying she wanted to renegotiate and it didn't work out whatever but um certainly jennifer lean in voyager i don't think saw it coming as far as i know i mean there was a lot of speculation i think at the time they were going to get rid of harry kim now for my money uh nothing against garrett wong but like that would have probably been the better decision i'd much rather have seen kess for a few more years and see where they were going with that character than see the non-existent character development of harry kim you know um but obviously, you know, Jennifer Lynn was the one given the boots, and, and that's how it played out. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you about Harry Kim. I think, uh, isn't there some story that he was named, uh, they were going to boot him out, but there was something like he was named on people's sexiest like, list of like, young actors, and so at the very last minute, he wasn't, he wasn't uh, yeah. kicked out or something like that. I, and I'm with you, I think Harry Kim is the worst main character in all of Star Trek. <laughs> Nothing against Garrett Wang, I'm sure he's nice, but... Uh, he, the, the, um, no, that's th- definitely, for the most part, it has 100% always been um, the female characters, um, and there's definitely something there. I mean, even in the doc, you know, you look at the writer's room, um, and as wonderful as all of that was, it's all dudes, right? And, like, uh, and, and I mean, th- Disco is very different, um, uh, and, like, the behind-the-scenes makeup of the crew of Disco is very different, and in the, car, in the upcoming Picard series, it looks like it's going to be very different. But, you know, that, that kind of behind-the-scenes shuffling happens on all television programs, happens in a lot of movies. Um, if, if Twitter had existed during the first three seasons of TNG, could you imagine, like, the uproar, um, given, given what's happening with disco and all the behind-the-scenes kind of musical chairs? So I think it's just part of the way, you know, the stuff is made. Um, and it's kind of unfortunate, but it's, it, it is kind of the way it is. There's also, I suppose, a kind of question. I mean, I think you get this less with Esri than with some of the other examples. I mean, with Esri, obviously, they, they lost a cast member. They knew they had a slot that, that they could fill, essentially. It was kind of a bit of a no-brainer, I think, at a certain point, that, okay, we can bring Dax back. And however, whether it's a man, whether it's a woman, however we want to play that, there is some way of bringing this character back and doing almost doing a kind of Doctor Who and having, you know, this character who's the same character but not the same character. Um, but in all these other examples, I suppose, the person is being brought in quite deliberately to serve a function. So if it's Michael Dorn, it's to try and bring the next-gen uh, people over. If it's Jerry Ryan, it's to try and target the 18 to 30-something men. You know, they were quite specifically explicit about that. And this was why I think Kate Mulgrew had such a poor relationship with Jerry Ryan, um, was because she was very angry about it. And she felt, justifiably, I would say, that they were doing a show which, you, you know was quite kind of feminist which showed these women in positions of authority which didn't really sexualize them which treated them seriously and then they kind of undermined all that work by suddenly bringing in this character who's being treated very differently and even you know going back to the original series Chekhov I mean Chekhov was designed to be you know he had his monkey haircut he was designed to like bring the kids in basically Um, so I suppose you have these characters who come in and there's this assumption that they're going to sort of drag a whole demographic uh, with them to watch the show and that in itself must create a lot of um pressure on them pressure on you know how that's going to work out but also obviously a degree of tension around the rest of the car so you know, you've got kate mulgrew reacting badly to jerry ryan you've got um the you know, visitor saying she was very anxious about wharf i don't know if anyone was particularly worried about nicole de Burr, but like there is a potential in these situations for things to be shaken up and everyone always talks about on these star trek shows you know this sense of family and camaraderie and all that well when you have people being you know shown the door and some stranger turning up to replace them in effect um 
that must be difficult. I mean, it must be hard enough on shows today, like The Walking Dead, where you've got people kind of leaving, coming and going, the sort of revolving door. But I mean, in certainly in that kind of era where there there seemed to be at least an expectation of more stability. You know, the same characters are in every episode, week after week. You know, they're not going to die usually. You know, there's some kind of reliability there. Um, I think these kind of big casting changes potentially could have a huge impact. I think they often want them to have a huge impact, though. That's why they do it. They're stirring the pot. I mean, yeah. the reason they're brought in is because they've reached a certain amount of stagnation. I won't comment too much on Voyager because I have very detailed views on that show, which has nothing to do with the cast, everything to do with the writing. Also, Garrett Lang is not the worst character in the history of Star Trek. That would be Chakotay. That's a discussion <laughs> for another day. Um, I mean, this goes all the way back to the original series as well with uh, Nichelle Nichols as Uhura, who very publicly has said she was going to quit because all she was there to do was to, you know, hello, Kirk's Enterprise, may, how may I direct your call? Uh, and it was only the intervention of Dr. Martin Luther King who's saying, no, it is very important you are visible and seen there that you stay, and that is why she stayed. You know, you know, in the movies, she started to get more to do and all that, but just at the time, her being there was enough, and, and that's what kept her. Uh, and it was the intervention of Martin Luther King which kept her in the show. Otherwise, she'd have left probably middle of season two, and then, you know, this revolving door would carry on. Um, so yeah, it's it's nothing new when it comes to Star Trek. Um, we've seen it with Discovery, though, by design, where you had um, Jason Isaacs as Captain Lorca, who was only in there for one season sort of thing, and then they've replaced him now with uh, Anson Mount, who has now been replaced by whoever we're going to get in season three. So Discovery's in this world of where, you know, like you said, Walking Dead and everything, where characters, no one is safe. Discovery's a lot looser with, you know, who will and will not die. I mean... I don't want to put any spoilers, but I certainly felt at one point Saru was going to leave in season two, of, and I was fully prepared to accept that that was going to happen. So. They definitely made it look that way, and I think they... In some ways, I found it more unsatisfying when that turned out to be a kind of fake-out, because I feel like they have set up... They, they have kind of made you believe that they might do something like that, and then they just sort of cheated it in, in in a way that in previous Star Trek we just accept yeah okay obviously they're not really going to die but obviously that's you know dying is one way of getting rid of people and I thought it was interesting Terry Farrell says in the documentary she she gets quite upset and she says I, I didn't mean I wanted to die you know <laughs> she's like okay so maybe I wasn't going to be there or I was going to do every you know she wanted to do like every other episode or something she wanted to kind of uh um, have a sort of lighter schedule but she, the fact that they killed her character was what she was really upset about from what I understand, and this isn't mentioned in the documentary, but I've heard elsewhere, what she wanted was the same deal that Cole Meany had, where he could go away and do a film for a couple of episodes and then come back. Because, you know, he had a film career. He's in Con Air and, um, you know, stuff like that. And when she went to the producers with this, and I believe it was specifically Rick Berman, basically said, uh -uh, no, it's not happening. You know, you go and stack shelves and all that and then left. And a lot of that just came from there. Uh, I will say the worst fake out where I thought they were going to kill a character didn't and then I was really disappointed, it was actually Battlestar Galactica in the Battle of New Caprica. I honestly thought they were going to destroy the Galactica and Edward James Olmos and all that, and then the show would carry on with Pegasus, which would have made a lot of sense at the time, but then they didn't, and I was just like, ah, it's a bit of a cop-out now. You built an expectation where you're going to do this dynamic, different thing, and then you don't do it, and now I feel cheated. Well, that is always the danger, I suppose. It, it, it struck me, actually, when you were saying that, the other person who has a very similar story about Rick Berman is Will Wheaton, who basically tried the same thing. You know, he wanted to do some... He had a film... I mean, he actually had a film career before he was starting on Next Gen. He was probably one of the more successful of those actors. And basically, 
uh, certainly the way Will Wheaton tells it, Rick Berman squashed his film career because he felt like he was uh, getting too big for his boots almost or, you, you know, was totally unaccommodating, wouldn't, allow, wouldn't reschedule a day's filming here or there slightly so that he could go away and do a film or whatever. And obviously he's another character who ends up leaving. I mean, we maybe don't think of it because he's not kind of, it's not like he's replaced in that obvious sense. But that is another person who's kind of got pushed out one way or another. Maybe it's that he wasn't popular with the fans, but it seems that there was also, again, this kind of tension with the producers. Um, and I suppose it does go all the way to the top to a producer, someone like Rick Berman in that situation, because I think with Terry Farrell, uh, the, the situation, I don't think they quite say this exactly in the documentary, but, but certainly the sense that I've got is that the writers, I, I'm sure I've heard Iris Stephen Bear say elsewhere, that he did not expect it to get to that point. Do you know what I mean? That they were aware there was conflict, they were aware there was negotiations, and they just assumed it would be resolved. And then when it got to the point and they were told, okay, this person is leaving, they were like, no, that's not happening. You can't, you, you know, we, we don't we don't want that. Surely you can sort it out. But it was too late by then, and they just had to solve it. I've actually heard that, I, I think this was from Myra Stephen Bear, that if they knew she was going, they'd have killed her off earlier in the one where Worf has to choose between doing the mission and saving Dax. Change of heart. Change of heart, because it's a much better story beat for Worf to then carry that forward there. But So it, it, it impacted the writers. They just didn't see it coming. I think with Will Wheaton, uh, he was very much um, Gene Roddenberry's um, project, if you will. He was there on Gene Roddenberry's behest. And as Gene Roddenberry's health declined, he became less and less involved and finally passed away. I think it's pretty much as soon as the season Gene Roddenberry movie passed, which I think is five, Will Wheaton's out by the end of that season. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting. You were mentioning um, before about Discovery and the way that characters are seem to be less safe in Discovery, and certainly they proved that um, in the very first episode with that character, and I can't even think of his name now, Connor. Was he called Connor something? or Con- Captain, uh, something? Yeah, okay. Oh, no, 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 I don't mean in season two. I mean in season one. I mean, yes, they did it again in season two. But in season one, they had the guy uh, who'd done all the press uh, junkets, who'd done... Yeah, okay. And then he died in, like, the second episode, uh, having barely been glimpsed on screen. And that, I think, was definitely a way of sort of gesturing, uh, saying, you know, this is not this is not your dad's Star Trek or whatever it is. You know, this is this kind of modern Star Trek. This is how we're going to do it now. But they do also have this thing with the captains, where it is this kind of revolving door. I mean... Uh, to me it's not so much the walking dead it's the kind of it's the harry potter version you know it's the defense against the dark arts teacher it's basically saying we're going to have this guy who comes in every year or you know maybe not a guy every time uh, and he's in charge and has this great role and, and you know everyone falls in love with him and everyone loved jason isaacs he was fantastic and then obviously you know he turned out to be the villain he had to be killed off anson mount they've had a real problem i think because he charmed so many people that people were clamoring for him not to leave and, they, and, and there was this kind of you know, like, how, how can they? How can he be leaving? How can they be getting rid of him? And you're like, well, they didn't really have much choice on that front. You know, this was very clearly a one, uh, you know, a one year thing with him. But there was really this desire. You know, is there any way to to get him to stay on it? And maybe they'll end up. Well, they're doing a short trek, aren't they? Maybe they'll end up uh, bringing Captain Pike back one way. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. I've I've definitely heard they're doing a new short trek with him, so that should be good. Something to look forward to. Yeah, I think it's the nature of modern day telly nowadays. It's the older, don't get any favourites because, you know, they might not make it to the end of the episode, which I I do think makes a better television, certainly better than the the reset button format of, like, your Voyager and your TNG now. Now you're actually on the edge of your seat watching a programme thinking, is my favourite character going to make it to the end? But do you want that? I mean, that's sort of what I question is, and I'll... 
to be honest, I don't watch Game of Thrones. I don't watch The Walking Dead. So, you know, maybe I haven't appreciated the, the glory of, the, of this style of, of televisual storytelling. But um, what I see is a lot of people getting very upset repeatedly and very angry with the writers for killing characters that they love. And it sort of makes me think, well, why don't they stop doing it then? <laughs> you know, I mean, I get, I get that you get the headlines. I get that you get the kind of um, tension. You get the water cooler moments. But is it all about the water cooler moments? Or is something like DS9... I mean, we saw them plotting this episode of season eight. They're very focused on the plot. It is all about like the act close, you, you know, ending uh, sort of cliffhanger moments, the kind of uh, moments. But is that what DS9 is about? Or is it about these characters that we love? And in a way, if you make it all about the plot, it, it, is that a danger? And that is something that they talk about, I think, in the documentary. You know, uh, Iris says that Michael Pillar was very much, you know, character first, plot second. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, obviously, we only get a, a few minutes of what a season eight will be like, and I think that the the DNA of the show would have uh, you would like to think that the DNA of the show and the style and the culture of the show would have continued going on. Um, but I mean, going back to your comment, I don't know. I think I, I do enjoy the the tension of a show like Game of Thrones, where you actually don't know that your favorites uh, are going to make it from week to week. Um, and I think that you know, I think I think Star Trek. I think I think Deep Space Nine was. Um, I love the seventh season of Deep Space Nine. It's my, I think it's probably my second or third favorite season of the show. And a lot of it has to do with Esri. I actually think going back to your list, uh, um, I, I love Jadzia. Jadzia was always one of my favorite characters. And, um, you know, I think the, I think what Terry Farrell does with the character, the character itself, um, she's an amazing Star Trek character. But I think the show gets, you know, the, the show gets better. Um, and I think it gets, she, other characters get better because she, she, she passes away. I think the character of Worf, the last, the last season of Deep Space Nine is one of the finest, like his finest hour. Um, I love what, you know, what Julian and, the, and, and Cisco go through because of the death of Jadzia. So I actually think it isn't just about the death of the character itself. It's what that death means to the other characters that you care about and how that propels the story forward. And maybe it's important in a sense that it comes out of the blue, that it, that it is kind of unexpected. I mean, it is almost that kind of um, Game of Thrones you think, you know, the way that she's killed it is quite random. It's quite um, yeah. sudden, almost like Tasha Yar, you know, previously. It's, it's not a death which is kind of... Um, it's not a heroic death. She's not Spock saving the Enterprise. She's actually just in the wrong place at the wrong time, and then she's she's gone, and it's it's a bit of a shock. I mean, I suppose there's a difference between something like that, and even say in Discovery, there's a difference between the kind of random deaths of uh, basically kind of redshirting uh, above the line characters, and um, this idea of this kind of uh, revolving captain's chair, which kind of in a way almost made me think more of um, you know as I mentioned Harry Potter but the other show that I suppose is really key here thinking about this reinventing and, and bringing characters back uh, as I mentioned before is Doctor Who because Doctor Who is a show where you know not only did they come up with a way that they could have a character they could have notionally the same character all the way through but played by different people and played quite differently but also it's kind of baked into the fact that the companions change every few years and the companions and the doctors might overlap so you might get the same companion with two doctors and then the same doctor with two companions and so on but but that baked into the premise there is this idea of a show that refreshes itself that kind of reinvents itself and it reinvents itself by bringing in new blood constantly uh you, you know on a very regular basis and obviously star trek doesn't do that necessarily but it does it is a show that's you know like doctor who been surviving for 50 odd years and it has had to reinvent itself in other ways by you know uh, as they talk 
talk about a lot in the documentary this you know trying to distinguish each series okay this is the the one that goes nowhere <laughs> or maybe it isn't but you know trying to find new ways of doing the same thing whether that's through new characters or new ideas or however you want to approach that it's amazing really when he i think it was three years william hartnell was playing the doctor right. and he got to uh he got too ill to play it and it was literally just the producer saying well we're on to a really good thing here how can we carry on the show but bring in a new character and they they thought oh what, why not get him regenerating into this new actor to play the main role and that here we are like was it 53 years later and, and now it's become such a big part of the show, like the fact that you can, after a few years, bring in a whole new character, new TARDIS, new characters, and just, you know, reinvigorate the whole thing. And there is also an element. I mean, I, I don't know whether this is uh, my understanding of the situation with Doctor Who is that there is also an element of the kind of contractual negotiation going on there, because... Uh, from what I've heard, when you you know the people who play the doctor, they generally get a pay rise every year, and their contract is renegotiated every year. And at a certain point, as with people in many jobs, it becomes more economically desirable to get someone new in rather than taking the next pay rise. So it's almost you know it's maybe not quite what was going on with Terry Farrell, but there is a kind of incentive to bring in that fresh blood, to bring in someone you know new and, and untested, as, as well as the kind of creative opportunities that offers. I, I think it's in like 50-year mission, the um, Mark Altman and Ed Grossman's book, that, I, that talks a little bit about the fact that they only had certain budget. Um, so to bring in a new cast member at kind of top bill cast member, they had to get rid of one of, the, of, of, one of them. So there was definitely economic an economic uh, decision there as well. And I think that it is, you know, we tend to forget that these are all, yes, these are, this is, this is entertainment. This is culture. We, we, we imprint ourselves on a lot of these shows and they become part of like our lives and we have, we're emotionally invested, but equally as important, they're also, you know, they're also products that we buy. Right. And so there is this tension between the economics and kind of the art, the artistic components of this, that we tend to forget. And a lot of these things are, a lot of these things are not necessarily artistic decisions. A lot of these things are economic decisions. And absolutely, I think if you look at Voyager, I mean, you could say, uh, you know, when Worf was brought onto DS9, they didn't sack anyone in order to bring Worf on. When they decided to bring Jerry Ryan onto Voyager, they seemed to be looking for someone to sack and they sacked Jennifer Lean. Um, uh, you, you know, which to me always seems particularly cruel somehow and the fact that she overlaps by those like two or three episodes so she has to kind of like actually turn up for work essentially almost even after the point that she's been sacked seems particularly uh kind of cruel almost but i mean that you know no wonder kess comes back years later in a kind of furious rage uh <laughs> wanting to smash the whole in ship the to pieces yeah I'm, I'm not sure i'd go along with that one are you really going to defend fury um maybe a little bit i i am not a kess supporter okay. any way shape or form i think the idea of kess of this character that was supposed to be seven years old and was going to age throughout each season i think that was a, a that could have been a brilliant idea had it been executed well but it clearly it was not but they were scared because they had like an attractive young 20 yeah, something woman exactly. and they were not going to do that totally. but i think that the, I, we could argue about the merits of how they delivered it but i think the story of fury of this kess coming back and being really 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 angry um, I think that was a, it's a great concept. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I, 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 I can see that. Maybe it was a good concept, poorly executed, possibly. But, you know, who knows? We can, we can, we can debate that. A good concept, poorly executed. A Star Trek Voyager story. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I, I was just going to say, just before we go, the, the, the one uh, 
massive cast replacement, of course, that I think maybe we should um, mention before going is the captain of the Enterprise. You know, I mean, we talked about Captain Pike in Discovery, but Captain Pike was the original captain of the Enterprise. You know, he was Jeffrey Hunter was the first to be, you know, not necessarily given the boot exactly. But when they came to shoot a second pilot, they could have got him back. I mean, they got Leonard Nimoy back. Uh, The decision was obviously we need someone different. We need someone a bit younger more kind of hunky more kind of actiony uh you know and hence we got william shatner and hence arguably we got star trek and again you know um whatever it is 20 something years later same thing happened almost with voyager you know they started shooting voyager with uh jean-vier bougeau uh, and realized she was the wrong woman for the job they got kate Mulgrew in, and you know uh whatever you say about voyager I, I don't know what you're going to say about Kate Mulgrew, but i mean like if you watch the footage she's definitely better than than the first person that they hired I'm not going to go too much into Voyager. As I said, deep health reviews, that's for another cast. Uh, I will say with Pike and Kirk, uh, the original pilot was never aired. So that was purely a producer decision who yeah. said, we don't like the direction that this character is. We like the show, but we want someone a bit more Shatner-esque. <laughs> and hence Shatner. And I think just going back to your earlier point about, you know, you have Game of Thrones where, you know, everyone is going to die. I think throughout all of Next Generation, and this is a show which replaced characters, you never thought anyone was in real danger. You never felt that. Even Best best of Both Worlds is probably the closest where you thought maybe Patrick Stewart's going to go because that was a rumour at the time. I think what we want is that happy medium between where when we're watching a story, when we're watching a show, you want to feel the characters are genuinely in peril. You don't want to go, ah, it'll be fine. You know, next week, hit the reset button, they'll be back again. So I think what... I, I think with Discovery they're finding that happy medium where there is peril people do die uh, Arium being a perfect example recently although she wasn't particularly well served up until that point didn't see her dying like that you know that was a complete ah! so you know I, I think Star Trek needs to find that happy medium where there's real peril people can die people might die but not every episode and not where we're sitting around the next day doing okay who's on your death bingo for this week I got Patrick Stewart for 500 but there's also the question of, I mean, you can shake up the cast without necessarily murdering anyone. I mean, uh, you know, Gates McFadden just went off to, to Starfleet Academy and as implausible as it may have seemed that she left her teenage son on a spaceship going out, you know, on dangerous missions while she was doing that, it was at least, uh, it made it a lot easier to change their minds a year later and bring her back again. If they killed her off um, and dealt with the kind of trauma of that, then they, they wouldn't have had that option available to them. So I suppose there's sort of two questions here. One is like, how do you handle... Uh, sort of plot shenanigans and kind of keeping the audience on their toes and the second is you know how do you shake up your cast how do you try to find the the right cast Uh, and i mean you know is tos in some kind of iconic sense only complete once we have chekhov or is it arguably the episodes before chekhov came along that are the best of tos and you know what what is it that we when we think of voyager we do often think of uh jerry ryan and seven and nine and in some ways that show did change its identity i think when she came on board it, to my mind it slightly lost the identity that it had to begin with um and that you know something was maybe diminished in that way as much as other people might say it was improved you, you you know what are these kind of creative decisions i mean that they are about money they are also even if the producers make a decision about money it's the writers who have to then kind of sell it and you, you know i would say for what it's worth um they did make a lot of effort to write seven of nine in interesting ways and to try and give her sort of stuff to do you know they took that seriously as a writing challenge um but it's kind of 
there's always got to be a kind of marriage of, of, of these things, you, you know, the kind of practical considerations, the financial considerations, creative considerations, the sort of interpersonal dynamics, and that when you're juggling your cast in these ways, when you're not making it as stable and kind of solid and predictable as maybe we have come to expect, um, you're, you're sort of, um, you're opening up that kind of worms one way or another. Yeah, I mean... Yes, I, you know, I, I think it's a little bit of apples and origins and kind of comparing Seven to someone like Chekhov. We, we like Chekhov and, you know, we live with the character of Chekhov for almost 55 years. But ultimately, Chekhov is a really minor character in TOS and in the movies, probably arguably even less in the movies, right? There's that really kind of famous clip of Shatner forgetting, you know, who Chekhov is, like, like in front of him it's very i've always thought that's got to be deliberate though i mean maybe but you know you you maybe but um but i think you know i think seven we could argue about whether or not it made the show better i do think that seven made made voyager significantly better in many ways um and i think that was a a, that's a tonal shift of an entire show Chekhov was just you know a minor character replacing another minor character so i don't necessarily think that you can really compare them Fair enough. Um, well, does anyone have any final thoughts before we go on this uh, subject of um, cast changes? Uh, you know, who, maybe who you'd have liked to stick around longer. Anyone want to put in a defence for why Pulaski should have served six oh. seasons? Or you know, yeah, true. Yeah, I, I do feel sorry for Pulaski. Really, I mean, she she only had the one season, which is never going to help. Perhaps if she'd had more, people would have come round to liking her. But I think the the biggest problem with her is obviously attacking data or data. Uh, you know, he was obviously a beloved character, and then she comes in. A lot of people say they were trying to make the Spock-McCoy dynamic again. But I think the trouble with that was, his Data is quite an innocent kind of character. He didn't have, like, the nous of Spock. So it felt like she was just bullying him all the time. But, you know, I, I, I think if, if we'd had more of her, perhaps we would have come round to her. And maybe that's the danger with bringing in a new character and trying to consciously evoke a previous character. Uh, that really, you know, you, you do as much as these are replacements. They do need to be their own people. They do need to be their own real characters. And actually, just thinking about Doctor Who, you know, with the companions, there is that kind of um, element, uh, particularly, say, in the, the more recent years of Doctor Who, it's usually like a, a young woman. It's, you know, there's, there's a kind of template in some ways. There's got to be some effort made to distinguish these people so they don't seem like they're just versions of the same do you know what I mean? That Clara doesn't seem like just a version of um, Amy. Do you, yeah. do you know what I mean? Like with, with slightly different Companion personality quirks. But exactly. You, you know, that really uh, characterising is a big part of the work of the writers. And, the, you know, doing that job well, finding the right person to cast, finding the way for them to fit in, finding out how they interact with all the other characters is a really important part of that. Well, before we go, um, do you want to all uh, let our listeners know if they want to track you down on social media and and bombard you with their uh, opinions about which characters uh, they want to put in a spirited defense of? um, How can they find you to to chat to you about those things? Carlos? Sure, we can argue about uh, Seven versus Chekhov. I, uh, That'd be a good uh, fight in the what's it? Sunkatse. Yeah, exactly. My money's on seven. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like uh, all the money's on seven. Um, yeah, I'm on Twitter. It's uh, at double mac with M A C C. And um, yeah, find me. And I also kind of tweet and write when I can for uh, treknews.net. So find me, and uh, we can argue seven versus Chekhov. Fantastic, Drew. Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at T23TY or obviously on the Babel conference. I, I love reading what's going on there. And finally, Andy. 
Uh, you can find me on my own podcast, The Great Derelict, which is at greatderelict.libsyn.com, where I talk about anything and everything to do about science fiction. I'm also on Twitter, at Andy3E. Uh, and I'm firmly of the opinion that Captain January should be drawn up on charges when I have returned from a Delta Quadrant and given a court-martial. Come at me. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you all for joining me. And uh, we've had a great evening watching the GS9 documentary. It's great to have a little chat uh, afterwards about this. But cast changes in Star Trek are not the only thing we've been talking about on Trek FM this week. So here's a listen to what else you might have missed out on on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Earl Grey. But just really in a most passionate way he could, in a compassionate manner, he, he goes to him, you are not alone. We're here to help you to do this together. And that means so much to me. Like, you know, I guess being being the youngest kid in the family, so I kind of think, you know, that like you, you don't want to be left out. So, you know, that feeling where no one's listening to you. But to see Picard really reach out to him and he wants to help him with all his might. But but there's just that there, there's that divide with him not being able to speak or hear. Melodic treks. Eventually, you know, it, it the s- screen goes to white, and then you cut to um, Ripley's ship that, that's been derelict for fifty-seven years, and there's this very lonesome-sounding string melody that's playing, and I don't think it's a direct lift, but it's it's certainly very very similar to a piece by um, Arm Kachaturian. Uh, it's from a piece a suite of music called the Gain ballet suite and it's an adagio the edge a star trek discovery podcast no that we say goodbye to everybody this season like anyone who walked off the bridge like if you had to go take a leak they would like all stand up and say goodbye it was like pathetic the orb maybe we all need to be comfortable with that discomfort of hearing something that's different from what we think. So instead of attacking, instead of pushing back immediately, we could just let it go. We could say nothing or we could respond with, hmm, that's interesting. That's not how I see it, but I didn't think about it that way either. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place is to join the larger conversation on the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type in Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture. That'll come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. Primitive Culture is brought to you by Duncan Barrett and Clara Cook. You can find Duncan Barrett on Twitter at Barrett's Books. You can find Clara on Twitter at MC. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. 
Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons' website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us, and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take this opportunity to thank our associate producers here at Primitive Culture, Tony Black and Amy Nelson. Tony was one of the founders of this show, and we still keep him in the loop about what we're doing. You can find him on Twitter at at AJBlackWriter and online, hosting about a dozen other podcasts on everything from the X-Files to classic cinema. Amy is the host of two shows on the Trek FM network, Earl Grey and The Edge, and you can find her online on Twitter at at Miss Amy Nelson. You're blended, all right.